Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. Don't forget this podcast also exists in German. So if you prefer listening to it in German, go to historyofgermanypodcast.com and click on the German flag. Um, I guess you probably didn't understand that if that's the case, but that's okay. Uh, also, new project, Secret Cabinet. <laughs> it's been fairly successful so far, kind of surprising some of the, uh, giving some of the content matter. It's about the sort of more risque artifacts of that have been locked away in the back rooms of museums, you know, not to offend the more honorable members of society, let's say. And this is part two on the Germans and Romans series. So last time there was kind of a setup, sort of the initial contact between some of the Germanic tribes and Roman tribes. And in part two, we're gonna start the part where it gets good, I guess, where we talk about Caesar. And there are some really pivotal um, moments in this episode, but obviously we're not going to cover all of those campaigns and all of those wars in one episode. So I'm not even going to try. So now we're going to kind of get get into Caesar. And I know that a lot of my listeners have been waiting for this uh, moment for a long time. So here you have it. I hope you're happy. So this is part one of that. First, I'll kind of define some important characters because up until now... Um, it's hard to say that they've, you know, the, the tribes we've come across really had a, a large impact in history um, until now. But definitely in this episode, we start to see events that really shape things even down to our day. And um, this is the part of history that I'm kind of excited about. So it's, of course, it's fascinating to talk about Neanderthals and all that. But um, here's the here's the stuff where we can still possibly see the effects. So one of the main characters of this story is Ariovistus, who's the leader of the Suebi and other allied uh, kind of Germanic peoples or tribes. And he lived in the second quarter of the first century BC. So kind of, you know, almost getting to AD years. Him and his tribe of the Suebi, and I'll get back to the Suebi in a second because it's not that simple. But him and his followers, let's say, took part in a, in a war in Gaul. And basically, he went there to assist the Averni and the Sicani to defeat their rivals. The I'll get back to this, but they basically they settled on the west side of the Rhine region in modern day the modern day Alsace region, uh, basically. And they settled there in pretty large numbers in this Gallic territory. And eventually, um, in this time in history, if you do that, you come in conflict with a young Caesar. Well, not that young, but uh, you come in conflict with a Caesar. <laughs> no one can really blame Ariovistus for not quite being prepared for this pivotal moment in history. Ariovistus was clearly not a time traveler, and he definitely did not have some access to some good old-fashioned divination. So, you know, he 
it's not really his fault. Now the Suebi, uh, of who he was the leader of, is kind of a Germanic tribe, quote unquote, because, um, I mean, first of all, they'll come up again in many later episodes. So the Suebi don't disappear from history at this point. So um, don't worry if I don't go too in-depth into them, they're coming back. In fact, the, the ancient tribe is almost kind of forgotten today, definitely outside of Germany, um, except for possibly outside of Caesar's own story. You know, so if you study Caesar, you're like, oh, Suebi, okay, that's interesting. But at one point in history, and this is what I think is interesting, and for centuries after Caesar, Suebi could be applied to a region that's maybe a third of modern Germany. They had branches in Gaul. They they were all the way into Portugal. There's some Portuguese words today that have Suebi roots, which I think is incredibly interesting. Sometimes they were mixed up with the Alemanni. Like, um, sometimes Suebi was kind of interchangeable, like Alemanni and Suebi. Sometimes they were seen as a subgroup of the Alemanni. But basically, Suebi, the word Suebi, for centuries threatened to replace the word used for Germans in general as a whole. Um, very much like later in history, Alemanni was used for that purpose, Germanen, Saxons, uh, etc., you know, all kind of won out at one point in time. Like the French and Spanish, you know, Alemanni won out. Uh, for us English speakers, Germanen won out in the sense that uh, the Romans, the Romans kind of called them all Germanic people, of you know, based off of the de definitions of the like of uh, Tacitus, for instance. All Germans were referred to as Saxons at various points by various people. Now Germans go with Deutsch, which kind of just meant people in Old High German, um, or it could be you know you could take it as people they understand, or therefore people that basically don't speak gibberish you know, looking at you, Latin. Probably not from the Teutons, which I just talked about in the last episode. And I realized that, just in kind of my own reading, that, um, you know, there is, maybe uh, it's good to, even though the, the Teutons kind of disappear from history in the last episode, and I didn't really want to worry about them again, necessarily, you know, it there's some similarities there. Like in German, it's Teutonen. And then Deutsch, you know, maybe it sounds similar. And then there's maybe some confusion because of the later Teutonic Knights uh, and, you know, Teutoburg Forest and all those things. So I just wanted to kind of um, not spend a whole episode on it, but as it comes up, clarify some of these things. And this is maybe one of those times. I, I could just see some listeners, um, you know, coming across history or reading German history and, and being a little bit confused by the terms. So... You know, the, the Teutonic Knights in German, that was the like Deutsche Orden. They all had much, much longer names, but, you know, they went by Teutonic Knights, Deutsche Orden. And in Latin, it was also basically, you know, Teutonic in Latin, Teutonicorum, basically, whatever. So the medieval Latin they used to name their order was different than ancient Latin actually would have been. Um, yeah, in fact... We have many lenses that we're kind of looking through when we look back through history and history of alchemy. I, I often make people aware that we're looking, uh, that we have to be aware of the lens, that I do not want to look through the lens of the 19th century occult revival. And here uh, might be an example of the lens of the Holy Roman Empire. And so when they actually spoke Latin um, in the Holy Roman Empire, it was different than the one that Caesar spoke. When they spoke of the Roman Empire, they were speaking of themselves, potentially, 
and I wonder exactly what Caesar, I wonder exactly what Caesar or even Tacitus would have thought about that, for instance. So clearly we're talking about a time when Romans were doing the writing and therefore the naming. These episodes sometimes sound a bit different in the German version, for instance, which is kind of why it popped to mind when I was translating this or came to mind. Um, you know, just for historic reasons, we give the same concept a different definition and name uh, in different languages. So this is interesting and important because when we get closer to the time period where the etymology kind of meets the events that I'm actually going to talk about, um, it's kind of like trying to look through a black hole. Like it's maybe really important to get, you know, some definitions clear so that we know that, oh, okay, so later these people turn into these people and uh, these are not the same thing. But anyways, that's a lot of blathering. Um, but had this Swaby not lost to Caesar that day, we'd just be calling them Swaby, as in like all the Germans, we would just be calling all Germany Swaby, and there'd be a country between France and the Czech Republic called Swabyland or something. Um, so, so they're important, and that's why I want to bring it up. Um, the other reason that they will keep coming up is the modern Bavarian occupation of Schwaben, or Swabia, which <laughs> it's not really an occupation, it's just a Bavarian uh, like political region of Bavaria, and it's like a county, let's say, and it was a political region in the Middle Ages, um, which actually held more sway, you know, it was under kings and such, uh, Schwaben was, and there was an Oberschwaben and Niederschwaben, like upper and lower Swabia. And, um, but it still holds on, not just as that polit political uh, boundary of that uh, Bavarian region, but it's also a geographic term to this day. If you say Swabia, that means something. Um, and it's also uh, like Swabian dialect, Schwabisch is, is a German dialect. It's kind of a very cute one, I gotta say. It's, it's adorable. And it's kind of a, I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, it's a subset of the sort of like Alemannish dialects, um, of which Swiss German, those all fa fall under kind of Alemannish. I wonder if someone would argue that, but I mean, it's a it's a continuum, and Swiss German might be on the extreme, but definitely, you know, they're, they're part of that same family. So, and, you know, the political entity of Swabia does not correlate with either the dialect or the geographic region of Swabia. It gets very confusing, but let's keep moving. Now, for the Averni tribe, for the Averneri, um, who basically Ariovistos came to help, they're important. Um, but I mentioned them in the miniseries on the Celts. They were a Gallic Celtic tribe. Since they were um, they were very pivotal to Caesar and the conquest of Gaul, so they're I mean not only in my previous episodes, but they're also mentioned much more thoroughly in places like the History of Rome, the or History of France and English podcast. So again, let's let's keep moving. And sometimes this show reminds me of my tour guide days. If you could see me right now, I'm actually making hand gestures like, come on, people, let's let's move it along. Um, so if you just like to follow me. Don't mind that guy. That's just Craig Buddy from the History of Pirates podcast. Say hi, Craig. Let me let me give you a bit more details on Ariovistus. It, he was native Swaby. He spoke Gaulish fluently on top of his uh, German German dialects. He had two wives, one of which he brought with him from home, and the second was the sister of King Vossion of Noricum. And Noricum, we mentioned in the last episode, it's kind of on the Austrian end of things, so he, which uh, also a Celtic uh, kingdom. 
So he acquired, um, this was a arranged political marriage. So clearly, you know, he has, it's a Germanic king of a Germanic tribe who married a Celtic queen on from the east, from east of him, and is helping his Western allies uh, in Gaul, you know, his Celtic allies in Gaul. So again, just like I said in the last episode, I think this is another great example of those blurry borders between what is quote-unquote Celtic and Germanic, especially in this time period. And uh, again, like I said in the last episode, it was Caesar in his writings who drew Rhine as the river. And here's why, because now he has a reason, now he's defined his borders, and he's said at some point, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to go after Gaul, at least in his mind, which means um, now that he's set the border at the Rhine, Ariovistus coming, crossing the Rhine to the west is going to be a lot of fun for you guys. <laughs> now, Ariovistus was described by Caesar himself as Rex Germanorum. This is not necessarily king of the Germans, but could be a king of Germans, okay? Uh, Latin doesn't differentiate with definite, indefinite articles, which that, that's actually much more likely because several other leaders at the same time period will, were called king of whatever. And um, Caesar might have even defined it as the king of the Germans that settled in the Gallic side of the Rhine, etc. And by the way, that's a thing, Germans settling on the other side of the Rhine, that's something that they really tend to do an awful lot. Ariovistus was recognized as a king by the Roman Senate, but um, again, I, I have to clarify, it's not entirely clear, first of all, if his social status back home, like among the Suebi, counted as the same as what the Roman Senate thought it was, so if this Roman Senate even had his status right. And similarly, what the Senate meant by rex at that point in the history of the Republic is not clear, because keep in mind how long the word rex had been used by folks living in Rome with different meanings over the centuries, and even by that time it had been centuries. So, um, you know, again, rex could mean anything from like absolute ruler to count, um, but in this case, probably, you know, king of his own tribe, and the Swabi, like I said, was a huge tribe, and probably a confederation of tribe. And Tacitus um, says that the Germans made a distinction between kings, who were chosen by birth, and military leaders, who were chosen by ability, and that kings did not have absolute power. So um, even if you were a king, and we called you that, it might not be, you know, an absolute monarch. So... And there's another character I'd like to introduce, um, Gaius Julius Caesar. Uh, what can I say about Caesar? I mean, you know, to be a Rex is cool, you know, ruling stuff. But you know what's even cooler? An honest-to-God Kaiser, the German word for emperor. What? What's that you say? Like, Julius wasn't even an emperor, it was Augustus, and, and in fact, at the time we're talking about, he wasn't even ruling at all. Yeah, but, but he still was Kaiser. I'm still right, okay? Because Julius isn't Julius, it's, it's Julius, something like that. And Caesar isn't Caesar, or even the way the Germans say it, Caesar. It was more like Caesar, something like that, okay? Which is basically Kaiser, okay, Kaiser. So, um, you know, had the Swabi one, it's it's Kaiser. 
Had the Suebi won, he would... Sorry. Had the Suebi won, we would be calling the Germans Suebi, or maybe Swabians, today. And the... But today, the German word for emperor is Caesar. So who do you suppose won this upcoming conflict here? Now, at this point, we have the, the History of Rome podcast, Life of Caesar podcast, a fantastic interview on the Ask Historians podcast. That's askhistorians.lipsin.com askhistorians um, about Julius Caesar and his personality, etc. That one's really great. And we have Myth and Legends of Greek and Rome podcast. I, I'm not ashamed to admit I let Paul Vincent read me a bedtime story many a night. Um, there's just so many good ones out there, so take your pick. I don't need to <laughs> repeat this all again. But this, um, you know, just so I do put it in the time frame, this is all happening basically before Caesar's governorship of Gaul, obviously. That began in 58 BC. And at this point, the Gaulish Arverni and Secani called up Ariovistus on his cell to swing by with some swords and some dudes and come help against the Adui. Maybe, I mean, you know, according to some sources, like myself. Now, the, the latter, the Secani, sorry, the Adui were a numerous kind of Celtic people occupying the area of the upper Loire River in France. And all these tribes were basically in northern central France and basically fighting each other um, with kind of intertwining and changing alliances. And Caesar doesn't even mention what the cause of this conflict was, but the Sicani controlled access to the Rhine River along the valley of the Doubs, which I hope I pronounced okay. That And for quite a while that they eventually kind of built up an oppidum, which, you know, we talked about last episode, which is a, or in the Celtic episodes, sort of a fortified town that Caesar liked to talk about. And this is at Vesontio. And tradesmen headed up the Rhone, and also a tributary of the Saon, which is back then was called Arar. They would pass the Dubs at Vesontio, and um, you basically had to be okay with the Sicani because no one could pass the Rhine to the Rhone, except, you know, if, if the Sicani okayed it. To the east of those that river system, we have the Jura Mountains, and to the west, we have the Massif Central in France. So Vesontio is like 75 miles or 120, mi uh, 120 kilometers from the stretch of the Rhine between Mulhouse and Basel, if, if you know the area. So it's, it's in France there. And Strabo says it was just straight up commercial. Strabble doesn't actually let not knowing get in the way of telling you how things were, which is, you know, thank goodness for Strabo. You know, especially even if it happened long after after it happened and, you know, everybody's long dead. But it, it's the only history we've got. So, okay, so it was commercial. Cool. Each tribe claimed the RR, which is that river, and the transportation tolls from the traffic going up and down it. But Strabo kind of just said, you know what, I think all of that should just kind of go to the Romans. Um, which, sure, if you're Roman, I think that's a great point of view. The Sicani also lived and really supported the Germans in their kind of previous or frequent, you know, previous and frequent expeditions across the river, which shows that Ariovistus coming in and actually fighting against the Sicani does show that, okay, something happened, there was a conflict, these former allies are against each other. But again, 
um, you don't hear a lot of people going in, going into the details of the conflicts of these wars because there's a lot of guesswork involved, even even with Strabo. And you know now we're even further removed from that time period. So I'm not sure. And again, these are brought up on so many other shows. But what I will tell you about is, or at least I'll tell you about the battles if I can't tell you about the uh, why it all happened. Um, but the location of the final battle between the Edui and their enemies which Caesar then comes into play was the battle of, it was the battle of Magetobriga. And now basically, okay, so here's that lens again, but um, this time it's the Roman lens and that's a very strong lens for all of us living today. But in those, so in those initial internal conflicts, uh, Ariovistus had some 15,000 men and was, was winning. Now, long story short, Julius Caesar basically is saying that Ariovistus comes in, starts with his allies, okay, his Celtic allies to help against other Celts, and starts knocking um, the people around that he actually came to fight, okay, so far so good. But then now the Sicani, the guys that own all the rivers and the tolls and everything, Ariovistus kind of moves between, you know, carefully crosses the river, avoiding them, and then kind of settles right between, right, so it's like, between the Sakani and the Ura Mountains, which is not a good place to be. And at this point, Ariovistus kind of decides that, you know what, this is not really safe. Wouldn't it be better if we were surrounded by other Germanic peoples? And he starts clearing out the Sakani and clearing out, um, you know, every time kind of demanding a third of Celtic land and, and giving it to his allies, in this case, the, Harud, the Harudis. And basically, Caesar paints a picture of, you know, the the Ariovistus coming in with the uh, Swabians and just or Swabi, and just kind of terrorizing the local population and slowly, you know, replacing the Celts with Germans. Which okay, that's uh, the story we have. So no comment there. But in 59 BC, while Julius Caesar was consul. Ariovistus at this point was still recognized as king and friend by the Roman Senate. So at this point, he was already probably uh, across the Rhine, you know, to the west of the Rhine. But again, even all the, even the Roman historians are not clear on this because um, basically it should be seen as a hostile act for a Germanic tribe like that to cross the Rhine. So, you know, were they already across, were they not across? I don't know. They didn't seem to know. But the Edui were allies of Rome, and in 58 BC, Diviciacus, one of their kind of senior magistrates, complained of Ariovistus's kind of cruelty and pleaded to Caesar to come to their rescue and intervene on their behalf. Caesar first sent ambassadors to summon Ariovistus to a conference. Ariovistus refused, basically saying if Caesar wanted to speak to him, he should come to him. And besides, he, he really wasn't prepared to enter Caesar's territory without an army, basically. Um, and that would be kind of just impractical and expensive to, to do immediately. So Caesar tried again, this time sending his ambassadors with demands. First of all, that he bring no more of his people across the, the Rhine, okay? So those that are west of the, sorry, those that are east of the Rhine, have them stay put. Um, he should let his and his allies, you know, let all the hostages go that they took, especially from the Adui, and um, stop making war with the Adui. He played the diplomatic tact a little. I mean, he said, remember, Ariovistus, you're a friend of Rome. 
and you know we we have a common interest here so let's let's keep this all enforced and everything and he was also you know given the option you can keep this friendship and comply otherwise caesar on you know acting on accordance with and by decrees of and you know an official capacity of the senate would not let the harassment of the adui continue and you know go unpunished um what do you think ariovistus did well he yeah i mean yeah he said okay and he went home no way that's not at all what he did um again basically he just said no i came here first i i own this property already so you know it's asserting the right of conquest and because of that he can he has the right to get tribute and you know tax his conquered more or less less diplomatically also kind of ridiculed rome's ability to actually protect their own allies and um <clears throat> boasting of germanic invincibility and with those words ariovistus invited caesar to attack him even if he so wished now caesar again where do we get this source from who's telling us this story it's caesar so you know he's presenting himself as being the diplomatic one okay again do we know what actually happened we have no idea not a clue so this is the very strong lens if, if the roman lens is strong the caesar lens is even stronger um so we got to watch out here but basically you know caesar is the one that's offering reasonable terms and trying to settle the matter and trying to come up with with a kind of compromise and ariovistus is the one that's just accusing him of you know conf you know confrontation and, and and trying to aggravate things and cassius dio writing more than two centuries later agrees with ariovistus's viewpoint that yeah probably caesar was trying to provoke a war and you know win glory and power so you know not to wait not to declare war first but definitely provoke saying like you can't can you can't have tributes paid or you can't um settle more people into the place you conquered that's that's yeah that's you know a a diplomatic provocation i'd say but whatever the motivation was ariovistus first of all clearly overestimated the strength of his position because he did apparently uh, believe that him and rome were kind of equals that the romans you know would kind of treat them as one of their own like you know senate to king kind of thing but obviously the romans had no equals there was no one that they ex accepted as a, a an equal except for maybe you know the persians to some degree or uh if they ever heard of the chinese you know but that that's it so they would see it more as a patron client relationship rather than you know a, a an equal footing sort of deal but uh, regardless ariovistus just did not believe that an attack was plausible i mean that that seemed to be outside the realm of realm of plausibility and at the same time that caesar is receiving this news back from ariovistus he also hears from ariovistus's allies the harudis that he was giving all the sicani land to if you remember that the harudis were devastating the country of the aod and that some hundred units of suebi under the brothers nasua and Symbarius were about to cross the rhine you know so more allies coming over now, in response to this, Caesar started mobilizing the troops, right? He starts getting ready. And this is the path that leads us to the third major battle of of Caesar's campaign uh, in Gaul, which is the Battle of Vosges. And I know how to pronounce that because uh, there's a chocolate so named. And the Battle of Vosges was in 58 BC. 
And this is the beginning of the end. Let's um, let's slow way down here and get into this battle because this is, this is some some good stuff. Caesar was already kind of in sweeping up mode. He was um, probably near Bibracht. Is that how is that how you pronounce that? Um, he just won a major victory over the Helveti and other Celtic tribes, which you know will mention elsewhere, um, disposed of the remaining Boii, which we already talked about, sort of, and kind of made their made his peace with the Boii. And in fact, he must have just kind of settled the remaining Boii in the Adui regions when this um, stuff started happening with the Adui and, and uh, Ariovistus terrorizing them and all that sort of thing. So, but, you know, Ariovistus was also, you know, a obviously a skilled general in his own right and a good you know commander of forces that sort of thing and he could also lay the you know see the lay of the land and recognize what would be the strategic defensive points and and that sort of thing and he identified Vesontio as the key sort of place where you know for the dope valley at least um and you know sort of marching for it and caesar you know, knowing kind of also what's going on, just because of his intelligence from the Gauls, um, actually got there first. And it's an interesting note here that Caesar at this point had to actually calm his forces down because of the reputation of the Germans. So they, you know, the legionnaires started to hear that the Germans are coming and that they were these great ferocious, that they were these great ferocious warriors. And Caesar actually kind of had to call a meeting together and, you know, tell the centurions that, you know, to kind of clean up the act instead of just following orders and really, you know. And it's it's one of those noted speeches that he does kind of an interesting ploy where he basically calls out the 10th Legion and praises them saying, you know, I know that I could march out tomorrow morning with nothing but the 10th Legion and, you know, I would have no doubt in their valor and we would be victorious. And of course, this has the effect that all the other commanders hear this speech and are kind of shamed and, you know, creates this rivalry and everybody's trying to do better than the, than the others and especially better than the 10th. And um, so, you know, Caesar kind of gets rid of the bad morale and makes them all fiercely loyal, especially the 10th Legion is, you know, now fiercely, fiercely loyal. And, um, you know, just one of those things that Caesar is known for over and over again, just this, this brilliance in commanding and getting the loyalty of his troops. Well, in any case, Visontio is about um, uh, 75 miles or 120 kilometers from the Rhine. And when Aravisti, when, and when Ariovistus heard the Ro that the Romans were coming or that they had already reached Visontio, they stopped marching, waited, and then and waited, and eventually Caesar said, okay, so, you know, he, he stopped. So Caesar started to march out very slowly in wide open country, you know, probably through his allies' lands, and started marching towards Ariovistus. And when they got about um, close enough, they stopped and agreed to have a meeting and kind of, you know, try to figure out where the miscommunication is before they start to go to war. And another interesting footnote here is, is we did mention before that after the conquest of Gaul, one of the Celtic influences were the cavalry and the just honoring of like near worship of their horses. And they had this, you know, a horse goddess was was very high in their pantheon. And, um, you know, just, just you see that in all their motifs and everything. 
you know, Julius Caesar knew this and, and, you know, saw that the Celts respected their horses. And we're not talking about Celts here, we're talking about uh, Germans, but still it's the same thing. So Caesar wanted to kind of meet them on equal footing. I just thought that was cool that Caesar told the uh, 10th Legion, okay, get up on horses because that's what the Germans are doing and we'll meet them, you know, because they're all on horses. And legionnaires from the 10th Legion then were joking like, oh, we just got promoted to knights, you know. Um, that's actually the origin of the nickname Equestris, which was the 10th Legion's nickname. So that's, you know, the, the cavalry or the knights. <clears throat> so basically they, they set up shop where there was kind of a high mound between the camps. And they just had a couple of bodyguards and, you know, a few hard, hundred yards away from each other, basically. And this is, you know, just about as neat as it sounds like, it, you know, this really is one of those rare sort of moments in history, you know, a kind of interesting parlay of different cultures with their armies meeting and, you know, stopping a couple hundred yards between each other. Um, this is just one of those neat little moments in history, you know, that would make a great scene in a movie or that sort of thing. And basically, uh, Julius Caesar and Ariovistus got together in the middle with a couple of bodyguards, and they started to make their case, you know, um, like Julius Caesar was explaining... Rome's policies and why what they had done and Ariovistus had changed his mind and said that oh actually the Adui you know had attacked first and we we're acting in self-defense you know what could we do and you know they're you know, kind of talking it through and that's also interesting because there was just no one in between them it was these two heads of state sort of um, or you know two representatives let's say and um, you know just kind of hashing it out According to Caesar, Ariovistus knew what was going on. Like, he wasn't so uncivilized um, that he didn't know about affairs of, you know, the politics of the area and everything. And so he knew that the Aroi in the past had not been helped by the Romans or gotten support by the Romans, and that, therefore, that would be an easy target to pick on. Um, you know, like, Caesar actually wrote, said that, you know, he was that, aware of things that no this was this was tactical this was smart um he doesn't you know he attacked them for a reason and you know this was not just like some random pillaging so and when i said uncivilized what i mean is you know julius, julius caesar used the word like he's not that barbarous basically uh barbaros literally is what he said you know again it's like the the it's like from the Greek and Roman meaning that it's just foreigner, they don't speak the language, but still it's, you know, where we get the word barbarians, right? So he's, he's not that much of a barbarian that he doesn't know what's going on, um, which means he can be held accountable is basically what I'm trying to say. Um, and I think what Caesar was trying to say. And Ariovostos, like from his point of view, basically he, he said the whole Roman friendship thing was just a sham. It was just... Um, you know, completely false, and he even kind of had an uncanny prophecy that he, he said, if I just kill you right here now, I bet there will be plenty of members of the Senate that would be thankful, which, of course, was true. Not to mention, the Senate had said that Gaul should be governed by its own laws and, you know, should be free, basically. And kind of Ariovistus' speech and blaming Caesar and getting all riled up also riled up his men. And it's about this time when the, the slow buildup of his men kind of getting madder and madder at, you know, what Ariovistus was, was blaming the Romans for. 
the German cavalry at this point started to kind of start to hurl missiles and Caesar had to escape back to his bodyguards. That wasn't the end of it, or that wasn't the beginning of the battle. The next day, Ariovistus invited Caesar back, but Caesar actually made the point that, oh, I don't think I can trust you anymore, and he sent two junior officers. But they actually, you know, Caesar had obviously a good cause for not going himself, because um, when those two junior officers arrived, they found Ariovistus in the act of already sneaking his army away. So Ariovistus had them captured and... Um, you know, because there are witnesses, basically, and put in chains. And over the next few days, Ariovistus moved his camp to within three miles of Caesar's. And he was trying to cover his movement with these little cavalry skirmishes for, like, as a distraction. And it's kind of neat. Like, the German tribes had this sort of special forces of cavalry mixed with um, light infantry who only supported the cavalry men, and then they were and they were kind of individual or in small units, and they worked together in combat like it, as these small units. So you you know they functioned together as teams basically. And Caesar stood outside in battle formation every day, but basically only small little skirmishes were offered. You know just to kind of hack away at the men bit by bit basically. But eventually, uh, Ariovistus managed to maneuver around Caesar enough that he basically had him surrounded. He, he was able to cut his supply lines, which at least isolated him, if not completely surrounded him. And according to Caesar, the only reason the Germans didn't attack right away is because that their women had pronounced through some sort of divination that they shouldn't engage in battle before the new moon. But actually, um, there is a much more plausible reason, maybe, or mundane reason, I should say, which is that Ariovistus basically had Caesar surrounded, right? He was just, you know, going to wait and let Caesar starve to death if he could. Why fight? But again, this is the part where if he actually did have divination or a time machine or something, he would have known, as I'm sure you know, that he underestimated Caesar just as pretty much everybody ever did ever until Caesar's death, which for some reason, yeah. Um, but under, you know, this is one of the best generals of all time, and uh, this this battle is no exception. So instead of just waiting for the Germans to, you know, get their act together and attack him, he decided to get all his units together and attack the weakest point. And Caesar left a, a small garrison behind to defend his camp, but marched all the rest of the forces within about 550 meters to the German camps, and he used a formation called Atius Triplex, where you have the you know you have the first two lines, and then the third line kind of protecting those first two, which the third line kind of builds a camp, and it's in that that camp where Caesar can then have legions and auxiliaries set up. And the thing is, is that looking back, you can say, okay, well this is all cool, but it actually took Caesar a little bit of time to set up his formations when he was marching, and they were very close. And in retrospect, um, you know, people like to point back and say, oh, well, that's the moment where Ariovistus could have attacked with all his forces while Caesar was getting set up. Um, and basically, the third line, the reserve, was completely preoccupied. But he didn't do that, so, um, oh well. In any case, so now Caesar had his whole camp changed around. Um, 
And now again, he could use you know auxiliaries that he had set up in the forward camp. So he still had the back camp that he had, and he sent some legions back to protect it. Um, but now the forward camp, he he had the auxiliaries pr protect that. And he did another neat little thing where he had each tribune conspicuously uh, take like personal charge of one legion, with you know kind of you know at at the front, you know really clearly taking charge of the legion. And the Caester took the sixth legion, and, and Caesar wanted the men to see that they were all in this together. There was no, you know, there was no, uh, there was no withdrawal. This, this was it. So all the leadership, all the command was with them, and it was either fight and win or die. You know, so that you know everyone's going to share the same fate, basically. And, you know, just little little Caesar tidbits here and there, like little little bits of genius all the way. And then, of course, he went towards the weakest point, which was actually the Germanic force, like its, 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 its main camp, the open camp. Um, I mean, he was surrounded by other forces, but the actual camp was probably the weakest force, uh, the weakest defensive point. And Caesar says, and this is kind of typical of um, Germanic battles sometimes, that, and we see this elsewhere in history also, but... Basically, the Germanic tribes had the wagon, it was protected by a wagon train with German forces behind it. And now the Germans had the option, of course, like in any battle, do we fight or run? But what they did is they had their women and children in the wagons, you know, behind them. And, and the idea was to place all the warriors in a position where it's like, you're victorious or you're annihilated with your whole tribe, your your women and children and all your possessions and everything. So if if you, you know, there is no, because that way, I mean, what, you, you know, all the men are killed and then all the women and children are taken off to slavery. No, it's just your, your tribe's gone. If, I mean, it would be anyway. So just this way, the tribe's just gone. And as, that was supposed to obviously give the warriors quite a bit of motivation to definitely, you know, not surrender or, or give up or fight as best as they could. And the Germans were also kind of subdivided by their uh, tribal groups or ethnic groups, whatever you want to call them. Um, so you had the Harudis, Marcomani, Tribotti, Vangiones, Nemetes, Seduci, Suebi. And the, so that from the Caesar's point of view, I think the Suebi were on the far right. And another important note is that the Germans didn't really have a reserve, whereas again, the the Romans had the usual, you know, two lines up front and went to one line reserve. And this is another really cool part of the battle, one that I, um, I'm sure is mentioned on another podcast, but I can't remember. But the start of this battle would also make a great movie um, because the, Caesar started the attack, but the Germans were so ready to go when this happened that the uh, Ariovistus and, and his men rushed at the Romans so fast that the Romans had didn't have enough time to throw their pila, the the spears that they throw first. You know, when you see it in movies, they they first throw the spears, and then while they're running, basically, and then um, and then they clash, and then they you know that's when the sword fights uh, start. But this one, they, they were both rushing at each other so fast that it just went straight to the sword play scene immediately. There was just no time to even throw the spears. And the Romans were pretty spaced out. Each each man had left room to fight, um, basically. The Germans were much more crowded and um, also basically in a phalanx sort of maneuver. And because of that, they definitely had more strength. I mean, they were able to push, like physically push the Romans backwards, even though the Romans, I mean, they're just much more spread out, even though the Romans started jumping on the shields and, you know, which 
can someone please make a movie out of this, please? Um, but in any case, a cavalry officer who you might have heard of before, Publius Licinius Crassus, um, sound familiar? It was the son of Marcus Licinius Crassus, um, the triumvir. So he recognized what was actually going on and so brought in the third you know, line of reserves to kind of get more momentum or more force to push the, the Germans back. And at the moment, the Romans were doing okay on their left, but not on the right. So Crassus, you know, wanted the Romans to kind of reinforce their right. And now normally, this decision is kind of reserved for senior officers. But in this case, you know, Crassus definitely did the right thing. And he won high praise after the battle. Because the effect was is that um, the enemy line broke and ran for the Rhine. Which, again, this was still like 15 miles or about, you know, 25, 25 kilometers away. Just, you know, men, women, children, and all just headed for the river. And the Roman cavalry in hot pursuit. So, you know, imagine, well, or maybe don't imagine, um, you know, just cutting everybody down as they go in a, in a, for a 15, 25 kilometer run. You know, it's probably a pretty brutal scene. Now, some, including King Ariovostius himself, managed to cross the river in boats or by swimming. And there's an interesting story to the, about that later, just a second. But the the rest were probably, you know, cut down by the Roman cavalry. Um, pr some probably taken uh, prisoners. But both of Ariovistus's wives, one of his daughters, another daughter, uh, they were all taken prisoners. Both of Caesar's emissaries... Both of Caesar's emissaries, the ones that were chained up um, at the beginning of the battle or, you know, when this started happening, they were both rescued unharmed. And then uh, they had interesting tales to tell of their own accord. Namely, for a couple of days, they were able to stand there chained up and listen while the Germans kind of argued amongst themselves whether they should be burned then or later. Kind of reminds me of like the Hobbit scene with the trolls, but you know they they just waited long enough until eventually they were freed. So they just had had a story to tell in the end. And Caesar Caesar also said that encountering Proclus, the one of the one of the two that was chained up, and freeing him from his chains, and freeing him from his chains gave him as much pleasure as the victory itself. And and it's a, it's a neat story because it kind of gives you a glimpse of, you know, the way, the, the climate of the forces, the way that his men were feeling and Caesar was feeling and everything. And it's just, it's neat. Like, you know, the officers were a family. And again, this comes up in like every show where Caesar's mentioned that his, his legions were just extremely loyal to him. But basically it was the Suebi that were the first to kind of crumble um, not because they were the weakest, but they were the ones that the Romans really focused on. They were on that, that right side from the Romans' point of view where Crassus sent the reinforcements. So they had the most heaviest losses. They were pursued the hardest in the retreat or in, I mean, yeah, it was beyond a retreat. It was just, just fleeing for their lives, basically. And some of the Swabi who had planned to cross the Rhine then, you know, had one little last stand, basically. And there was other tribes and allies that joined this last stand as they kind of got to the river. But the thing is that a lot of the allies um, now saw which way the wind was turning and started joining in on the massacre on the Roman side. So they switched side and started fighting the Swabi, you know, before the Romans even got there. Uh, so it, yeah, it was it was really bad. So it just kind of became exponentially better for the Romans and worse for the Swabi as as the retreat kept going. And 
Now, again, the Swaby, you know, some did make it over the Rhine enough to kind of have a future legacy. Um, the the legendary one, and I almost doubt it because I don't think there's enough of them left to to do this. But but also keep in mind, not all the Swaby crossed the Rhine in the first place. So there were still Swaby on the other side of the line that never saw Caesar. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, they retreated off into the Black Forest and um, in many... <laughs> Uh, German kind of well, you know, folk legend or or it's hard to hard to put the right word on it, but it is an important German concept in legends and stories and 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 you know history that you know they kind of the people kind of came from the woods and they could take refuge in the woods and you know just just listen to some Wagner and you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but this is you know one of those cases where they take refuge in the Black Forest and come out as the future Alamanni. Eh, that's that's a beautiful tale. It's it's really oversimplified, um, but yep, it's you know Swabians. You know we still have the word today. It's part of the Alemanni dialect. It's um, sure you know why not? Um, and Ariovistus, you know his role in these future Swabians is also kind of unclear. He was dead by four years after this in in 54. It's not sure um, that he probably. I mean it's unlikely. Let's say that he retained any sort of you know, royal position or, or any sort of tribal leadership position after that retreat that was pretty bad. There's, you know, some tales that he fled and lost his sword, which was, you know, when he crossed the river, which is a huge shame. In fact, it's such a big shame that your it is your job then to go hang yourself. And um, that might have been his end, or it also might have been, uh, he might have actually gotten a traitor's or like deserter's death. Um he, you know, so he might have been hung by others, basically as a as a deserter, even. So it's 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 hard to say, but definitely that was kind of that was the end for Ariovistus. Um, he leaves history. Caesar is still just getting started, though. So at this point now, Caesar has, you know, the entire left hand side of the Rhine, um, the west, the west side of the or the west bank of the Rhine. And, you know, he, he barely even blinked. He just keeps right on marching. He, he marches against the Belgae. He marches against the Belgae. Um, he, you know, crosses the Rhine several times, which we're going to get back to. And it is, again, before I end this show, there's, there's some interesting things here. Um, because we're talking about the Alsace region, you know, the, again, people in history, for probably the wrong reasons, have tried to figure out, okay, who are the Swaby? And you know, he had a he had a Celtic wife and Celtic allies, and and even the name Ariovistus. You know, how Germanic is that really? It's it's really um, tough to say, just for um, you know, millennia later propaganda reasons, like who were the first there and why were they there and why was it okay that they were there and you know all that stuff. And it's and it's ridiculous and i'm not going to get into it so much but they're because of the importance of the alsace region um and if you don't know what i'm talking about see world war one world war two the franco-prussian war whatever there a lot of work has been done into this let's say um to figure out exactly whether how celtic or germanic they were because they're in modern day france you know from germany um but it is not clear and i think uh the aftermath of this and the battle itself actually made these borders more blurry, not less blurry, because some of the people that escaped into Germania, you know, what will become Germania superior and all that stuff, 
is uh, some of those were Celts, some of those were married to Celts, um, and now they clearly went into Germanic-speaking areas. So again, you know, genetically, this is why I had such a hard time saying, well, genetically, because there's no such thing. Those those lines are really blurry. So if we're not talking about propaganda reasons, there's there's no real reason to go into it, and I'm happy not to, because it involves theories of ethnic cleansing and that sort of thing and there's just no record there's just no indication of that it was just more much more likely that whoever was wherever they were just kind of peacefully integrated with whoever lived there whether it was romantic celtic population or they crossed the rhine and it was the germanic population uh you know yeah there wasn't there wasn't any ethnic cleansing or anything like that so um that's all i'm going to say about it but uh, Ariovistus itself, because it was kind of, um, I'll bring up one more little thing, which uh, incorrectly in the 19th century, uh, Ario was co um, compared to the German word Ehre, which means honor. Um, that's not true, so that didn't happen. But it could be there was there's many more interesting theories. Um, uh, Smith's Dictionary of Greek and Roman Biography and Mytho Mythology, um, he has under Ariovistus that it could be that um, Smith translates Ario as Heer, like a host. It could be an army, something like that in, in German, um, Heer. And Vistus, like the German Fürst, um, like prince, uh, in the sense of a, of a principality, uh, like Liechtenstein. But certainly not from uh, Aryan or anything like that, which has also been suggested, obviously. Um, it's not debunked. In fact, Hardia did exist as like here, as as you know other meanings. Um, it, like Hardi Uha could be like first warrior. That existed way back in runic scripts, you know, inscriptions. So Ario very likely means army or something to that effect, or battle or fighter warrior. Um, Hadi Volofs is battle wolf, okay? Uh, something along those lines, sure, but but not Aryan, no. And there's there's some interesting because if you if your if your name is basically um, army prince or army, you know that that becomes army leader. Um, there are some interesting things that that actually could be his title. Tacitus says that that means as much as general. And we do know that the Suebi were huge, that they might have had over 100,000 men yearly to kind of, uh, you know, send off to war, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, who knows? But uh, because, again, even the Suebi lines are blurred, and it is, it is thought that they're probably a confederacy of some sort. And out of the many kings that joined this confederacy, Ariovistus became the king of kings, the generalissimo that led, led the rest into battle could have been a title um you know who knows and there's all kinds of uh yeah all kinds of little theories that that go along with this but yeah anyways i mean there's there's other there's other examples along these lines like spear leader is could be ariogaius and you know all that sort of things and there's um similar words in, in irish gaelic and that sort of thing so um the other direction that I mentioned Caesar went up to Belgium and and kind of went north and all that thing but he didn't let the Rhine stop him at all and this is one episode that I was looking forward to since the very beginning and next time I'm going to talk about the bridges that Caesar built over the Rhine because this is finally one aspect of German history that I'm just like 
really, really wanted to talk about the engineering behind the bridges, the effect it had, and uh, you know all that, all that sort of thing. So um, yeah, I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm going to get to that next episode first thing. So it'll be uh, part three on the Romans and Celts series, and I hope you're enjoying these. Don't forget to check out secret-cabinet.com. And I just bought another domain to make all of my weird links and everything kind of easier um, to figure out. I know I made everything easier by buying another website, but um, it is true. That is that is how it is. So for now, danke fürs Zuhören. Bis zum nächsten Mal und auf Wiedersehen. Thank you.